Hello and welcome to the Rams Review Podcast. Discussion, insights, analysis, all passion, all derby. Some decisions are black and white. Let's get stuck in. everybody and welcome to another episode of the Rams Review Podcast and today as always joined by Corey. Corey, hello. Jason, how you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. And today we are joined by yet another American star, John Hawks. John, how are we? Oh, welcome. Uh, great to be here, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. Appreciate it. Not a problem at all. So for you, obviously for the Derby fans out there, um, 93 to 95, John, I think it was. You were, it was 1943. You were 1943 <laughs> to 1945. It seems like that long ago. If I talk to Darren Walsall, he'll start winding me up and telling me how old I am. So, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, 93 to 95. Lionel Pickering, uh, what was his name? Pickering was the owner at the time. Yeah, Lionel Pickering, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it was a, it was really a beginning stage of kind of almost restructuring Darby County. A lot of young yeah. faces coming in. Paul Kitson, Tommy Johnson. Caviadini, you know, some of the younger guys coming in. And believe it or not, when I left um, Sheffield Wednesday to come to Derby, there was a great vision at the club that they wanted to get themselves back up. We got to the final, as you know, and I mm. still have nightmares about the chance that I missed inside the 18, so don't bring that up. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm getting I'm getting a lot of help on, on that, mental therapy. Um, but no, we, we did well. Uh, I was one of the young, older players at that time in the roster, mm. which was strange for me. Very strange role indeed. After being one of the youngest lads at Wednesday, it was kind of thrown at you, um, you know, with Gordy and a couple of the older lads to be leaders now. And uh, it was a challenge for us, but it was a great time. I loved it there. So yeah, yeah. what were what were your memories, John, of obviously um, the baseball ground and, and, and just, just putting on that Rams shirt and everything? What's the one moment that stands out most? Yeah, I, I think it's a great point you bring up about the baseball ground. Um, it, it's very unusual for an American to go and play in a baseball ground in football in, in the UK. Um, but I thought the passion of the crowd um, was fantastic. There was a great connectivity there. I think we were still, we could have done a better job of getting out more in the community, you know, from a club standpoint at that point. And uh because I think when the fan base gets to know you more, uh, there's an attachment there and they know how to drive you and support you during the bad times as well as the good. But, um, yeah, I think it was just such a unique situation playing at that ground. And uh, I still haven't had a chance to step in Pride Park at all. So that, that's been uh, one of my wishes. Hopefully that can come true soon and I can get over to Derby and, and go to a match there when things hopefully get back to the new nor- normal if they happen. Uh, but, yeah, unique situation playing at the baseball ground so john i want to talk a little bit about your career before darby a little bit you start obviously at uva uh my mom's a two-time uva graduate so wahoo wah she told me to tell you that um and um you go to the albany capitals and then how do you go from the albany capitals to sheffield wednesday in england yeah that was uh we were at the time in in such a beginning uh process of of building up uh, the U.S. Men's National Team. And at that point, they had many discussions. How are we going to qualify for the World Cup? And it had been the last 
qualification was for the 1950 World Cup in terms of uh, representing, and they wanted to get back there. So what they did was they tried to bring us out of university and make us full-time players by the Federation, which was interesting. If you think about it, it, it actually, that to have that conversation would be like in many countries around the world where the game has grown for over 150 years plus. Um, sometimes it's unheard of, but that's what we were doing. And in between the training camps, we needed football. We need more training. The American Soccer League was existing at that time. Um, it was really the USL, which I'm coaching in today. But I'd gone back and forth in transformation of different names and different um, landscapes. But Albany Capitals was one of the teams that I can go and play for. I had some family up in Albany, New York. My cousin Erin was up there. It was a great singer and a, she's an entertainer. And um, a couple of the boys, Tab Ramos and Tony Miola, wanted to play in Jersey. Um, and I was looking for a new experience. So I, I joined them, played in a few games. I wanted to play more, but it was more about flying in, training a couple of days a week and playing the game, which wasn't ideal for anybody. It wasn't ideal for the team. It wasn't fair to them. It wasn't fair you know, to me in terms of preparation either. But it was a great experience. And Jim and John Simpkins were actually owners of that team at the time. They had some connections in the UK. Um, I was starting to really become a young, ambitious player that thought maybe there's a chance for me to have an opportunity to go over to the UK and play and compete and find out a little bit more about being challenged. And um, they made the phone call and a couple of clubs were interested and Sheffield Wednesday just happened to be one that I went to in January prior to the World Cup. We had qualified for the World Cup, so we had done that. We set the goal for that as a U.S. nation and uh, we got there uh, for Italy in the summer. And I went over to compete and play with uh, Tony Miola. And uh, that was it. You know, I came back. I turned them down at the time because Ron Atkinson liked me and wanted me to stay through May. But I thought it was a unique in, uh, situation for the national team at that point to stay together. And I would have missed the building and preparation work that uh, goes into your first World Cup uh, in 40 years. So for me, it was a, it was a tough choice. It really was. I, I was, uh, you know, in theory, I was shutting the door on myself. <laughs> but I asked Ron Atkinson if he would consider me in the summer after the World Cup. And he said yes. And so, again, you're praying that you stay healthy and that you do well. Uh, he was commentating, you know, for a television network in the World Cup, saw me play, invited me back. And then, um, you know, it was a long story about making it. You know, I went around to a couple of clubs, Blackburn and Celtic, and then ended up back on Wednesday and uh, signed there. And the rest was history. Glorious three years. Yeah, you had some success at Sheffield Wednesday. And a little success is to put it mildly. I mean, I believe you're the second. Uh, there's only three Americans that have ever appeared in an FA Cup final, and you're the second of the three. Pulisic obviously did it a couple weeks ago. But, you know, um, John Hark's FA Cup finalist, um, what's what's that like when that when that feather's in your cap? Yeah, it's a, it's an honor, really. When you think about so many great English players, um, you know, back in the day it was hard to be a foreign player uh, in the English league. And for us, uh, you know, we were in the old Division Two at that time. So I had come to the club when they were relegated from Division One. Ron Atkinson was in charge and he wanted to get back up. But he had some lofty goals and he set the ambition, um, you know, process in, in, uh, on the front foot. And we, you know, not only did we get promoted that first year, but we actually won the League Cup final against Manchester United. Um, playing in the FA Cup final against Arsenal in 93, 
uh, and being in the League Cup final in the same year, playing in a semifinal at Wembley. I played five times at Wembley in 93. It's hard to imagine that as a player. You're very, very fortunate, and I was very humbled by it. Um, you know you're a small part of history in the game. There are so many great players that haven't had a chance to represent their club in an FA Cup final. And uh, so, yeah, I wanted to make the most of that. You know, it was just unfortunate that we lost that. Um, one of the, obviously, so you, you come over, obviously, with your two stints and obviously the, the lone move to West Ham when things didn't quite go as you was expecting with the MLS uh, MLS start. So, obviously, over, over 150 appearances in and around England, a few goals to boot. Um, I think you've got uh, I think you've got a record, haven't you? Or, or, or you won a goal of the season or something like that? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I, I've I've read a little bit about it, John. I think you've been, I think you've been a little bit on a little bit coy with that one. I've heard it's an absolute. I've not seen it, but I've heard it was an absolute wonder goal. Yeah, it was a tap in from about six yards out. <laughs> no, it was a great goal against uh, Derby of all clubs, and it was. Uh, the club that I would be playing for uh, a couple of years later. Um, it was only my I think it was my third game uh, or fourth game at Wednesday, and you know, it was in a cup run. And, um, you know, it was a cold night. I had a short sleeve top on. And the lads were warming up. Some of them had long sleeves, like John Sheridan. And I asked for a long sleeve, and I got so much stick from everybody in the dressing room. And they were telling me to toughen up. And, uh, you know, that game was a, a match against a very historic club in Derby County. Um, I had family there. My uncle, William Burnside, lived in Derby. My cousin, Neil, lived there. Uh, my cousin Diane was there. So I knew the history of the club um, and the good days back in the 70s and 80s. And, uh, you know, playing there and playing against Shilton was was a dream of mine. To score a goal like that against him was, oh, it was incredible. It was incredible. I didn't believe it myself. But we got the, the 2-1 victory. Uh, I assisted Paul Williams on the near post for the game winner. And uh, it was a great, great, great win for us. But, uh yeah, we had we had some good moments there with Sheffield, and then you know transitioned into Derby County. How did that move come about, John? Was there with phone calls or anything like that? Because sometimes us fans we don't necessarily understand how the moves get pieced together. How did that move come together for you? When I first went to England, um, I was connected to Ian St. John uh, as an agent, and and Sainty uh, looked after me, did my deal. He and his son, uh, Ian Jr., did my deal with Sheffield Wednesday. And um, as I was coming, I did a three-year deal, very low money, very low money. And um, I just wanted to get my foot in the door. I didn't care about the salary at that point. Um, but uh, as it came to my end of my deal, the gaffer, Ron Atkinson, told me in the first year, if I played a certain amount of games and contributed well and did well, he was going to honor me with a brand new contract and raise my salary. Unfortunately, after the first year there in the summer, he went to Aston Villa I was on the Jersey Shore when I found out, and uh, I had about 10 days break, and I came back and saw some friends and family, went to the Jersey Shore and the beach. Uh, I was devastated that Rome was leaving, um, but uh, Trevor Francis came in, and uh, Trevor did not honor that renegotiation of my contract. He, he kept me on that for the next two years, and when it came to negotiation time in my third year, uh, I played about 80% of the games as a starter, and... Uh, I felt, and a lot of people felt, that he was, uh, oh, I lost you there. He felt, and a lot of people felt, that um, it was more about 
uh, I've got to earn it. And I think when I try to earn it and compete, um, he didn't want to give me the salary that, that I thought I would get. And so oh, there you are. Sorry. And so we were well, we were well below, um, what he was, you know, my agent was, uh, was working with and Darby County and offered me, came in and offered me twice as much. Um, so I wasn't, I'm not saying that I made the move from a financial point of view, but it certainly didn't hurt. Um, but the club itself in terms of the plans and what they were trying to do with Arthur Cox was the manager at the time, by the time I actually signed that deal and came in to play for Arthur Cox, he was, uh, ill. Um, and he was, he had stepped down as a manager. And so Roy McFarland took over. Um, and so, you know, for me, I was like looking forward to playing with Arthur and I knew so much about his history and how he managed Gaza and, you know, Chris Waddle and players from Newcastle and everything else, but not saying nothing about Roy and Roy was a good manager. And it was just a, a whole new chapter for me in starting, but that's how it came about. It was like Everton came in and offered a deal for me as well. I just felt like Derby County was kind of interesting to go with a club that had a big vision of growing and building something you know, um, and kind of restructuring and, you know, it was enticing for me. And to be, to be fair, Johnny, a year late, a year after you left, they, they obviously achieved that. We're getting back into the Premier League with obviously some of your colleagues, I would have thought with, uh, Gabby Dini and the likes, you know, uh, being, being the forefront of that. Um, yeah. you leave Derby, the MLS, uh, 95 was due to start. And then obviously, yeah, you hear that that didn't quite happen. So obviously, you you come back over to England into West Ham, but then th those early stages of the MLS, we had. Uh, I, I'm I'm sure you may well have heard the name Ian Ian Foyer. We had him on um, the podcast uh, a few weeks ago, uh, and he was obviously he was, he was in and around the the USL at the beginning. Obviously, I'm sure the same as you were. And it, when he later on in his career, when he went back to the MLS, it was obviously completely different. How did you you must have been there? Obviously, the the first year of the MLS. How, how was it for, for you and in terms of what you obviously was, was used to in with American soccer? Yeah, it, it's a great question. Um, it was a, a little bit of a, a fearful time because you're going into the unknown. Um, you're talking about, you know, a player like myself who had been the ball boy for the New York Cosmos and the old NESL days. So I was able to rub elbows as, as an 11, 12 year old kid. Uh, with Pele and Beckenbauer and, you know, the likes of Dennis Tewer and Stevie Hunt and all the Giorgio Canaglia and all these top players in the world. And that, like, kind of pushed me on. And then when the NASL folded in 84, there was such a long absence of pro soccer, the highest level in our, in our country. So when it was finally getting going in 96, um, I remember talking to Harry Redknapp about it. And he was like, Harksy, I want you to stay at West Ham and we'll do the transfer. And I was like, well... I always kind of felt our generation of players that qualified for the 90 World Cup, we took on accountability of growing the game in our country. And so some people said, oh, you sacrificed for it. It wasn't really a sacrifice because you're doing it out of love and you want to see the game grow. And you're really determined to do it. So coming back in 96, you're, you're going into a dark unknown. You really don't know how the league's going to go. You want it to be competitive, but you know in the beginning stage, it's, it's not going to be. There's going to be a lot of clubs that are hit or miss. Some get it right, some don't get it right. Um, and then there's, again, the ownership groups and the financials. When you talk about the operating costs, are some clubs going to survive after the first year? Or is it going to be football for a year or two and then it's going to fold? So it was a, it was a, uh, a leap of faith 
I would say. And um, thankfully, it worked out at DC United coming in. Bruce Arena was my manager at UVA, the University of Virginia, which I, you know, I knew him very well. And it was his first pro coaching job that he was coming in. Um, he asked me if I would come back and be the captain of the squad and help lead and grow something. And so I took that responsibility to my heart and I did it. And so we won in the first two years. We went to three cup finals in the three years that I was there. We lost the third one. But we won the Open Cup. We won the Intercontinental Cup. We won the Champions Cup uh, against the Mexican clubs. So we had a great deal of success, five trophies in three years. And so really successful club. And we kind of set the stall out, you know, for the league. And then it just grew from there. So, yeah, it was, it was a scary time, to be honest. But I'm glad it worked out. And a lot of players that came back from Europe at that time and, you know, contributed to the growth and development of the league in our country um, the founders of the game. We owe a lot to, for sure. John, I know Ian spoke of this a little bit, and I wanted, and you just touched on it slightly. And I want to talk a, a bit of a dual dual aspect here. When you when you were in England, did you did you get people saying, "Why don't you go play baseball? Why are Americans here?" and that kind of thing? You know, what was what was that experience like for you? Because you're obviously one of the first Americans to to come and play in England. And then when you come home, you know, you talk about being this ambassador for the growth of the of U.S. soccer. I mean, did you obviously you had to have took that to heart. But I mean, did you take that to heart? And then, you know, obviously, are you proud of what you were able to accomplish during that as well? Yeah, I, I, I do take a lot of pride um, in, in the accomplishments, but also for being a younger player at the age of 28 and coming back to a country that, you know, you really should stay overseas. And I was like. You know, I went overseas at the age of 23. I played in the World Cup already. Um, you know, we were going to host the World Cup in 94. And but for me, it was I was very determined young lad to be a professional player overseas and get that experience and and really represent the U.S. Um, internationally as a footballer in the club environment. Um, so I took that, you know, uh, with a lot of pride. And when I did come back here, yeah. Growing the game here as an ambassador, um, you know, you're not sure if it's going to work out or not. <laughs> so it's a daunting kind of transition. Um, but I do look back on my times in England and, you know, playing six seasons, you know, competing at a high level, being the first American in the Premier League. Um, you know, it, it's fun, but it's part of you're only a small part of growing the game. Everybody does their part whether it's an American representing in Spain or it's in somebody in Germany or it's in Holland or wherever it may be, we're all trying to do our part and grow the game. So getting back to the States and seeing now, as you look back and we just had our 25th year anniversary in major league soccer, you look at the growth of the league and you're thinking to yourself, there is some real strong foundations there from a financial prospect, from an ownership you know, perspective and from a league television rights, partnerships, everything. Uh, from a consumer, it's grown. So I, I, we take a lot of pride in what we were able to do and contribute back in the day. But it's only gotten so much better. There's so many quality players now playing in the league, and it's strong. And John, you're very, you're very, uh, in a very fortunate position, obviously, because you come in and you're, you're like one of the first players signed in MLS, right? So you're able to see that growth from the player side. And so walk me through that aspect, and then obviously you become the head coach of the expansion FC Cincinnati in MLS, so you can see yet MLS take another step in its expansion from a, a slightly different role. So, you know, and obviously now you're at Greenville, again, sporting director, head coach of, of this new USL team. So for you, 
when you when you look at the growth of American soccer, what what sticks out most to you from the time you started and you're first in the door at DC United to 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 now? I, I would say just how many great opportunities there are. You know, um, what not not just being a player in the league, but being a coach, being an administrator, being sporting director, being whatever it may be, and taking the responsibility to continuously, you know, and have that consistency of saying, I do want to be a builder. I want to grow the game. Um, so taking on an FC Cincinnati, building it from scratch, putting a roster together, um, you know, competing in the first year, getting into the playoffs, you know. You know, uh, I think I was 16 wins, six losses and eight draws in the first season and giving players an opportunity at a platform to compete and see them grow in the game and how much they believe in themselves. Um, that is such a rewarding experience as a manager and doing what I'm doing now. Um, I can't do it without my coaching staff and with the ownership group down in Greenville, uh, South Carolina. They, they've been great. They're like, we give you the keys. Tell us what we need to do. And so being able to think that through, it, it helps you grow because you challenge yourself to go out of a comfort zone. It's a lot of hard work. And you're always looking to improve every single day as a manager. And if you can learn from the mistakes you made as you are putting your imprint on a club, wow, that's the best thing in the world because you correct it right away and you move on in advance. So it's been fun. It's been rewarding. I still have a long way to go, but I'm enjoying the managing. Um, we're, we're competing again this year. We made it to the final in our first year of uh, Greenville Triumph in the USL. And uh, right now we're undefeated after four, so it's early. But we only have 16 games in the season this year. So I keep telling the boys we're a quarter of the way through. we got a lot of work ahead of us still. So, John, you talked about it there. I mean, you're, you're a player, and then you move into management. What do, you, what do you wish? What could John Harks today tell John Harks from 1993 to 1998 in England or in the early Demis Demis, what do you wish you could go back and tell yourself 10, 15, 20 years ago as a player? Uh, slow down. Slow down. Put more preparation in. Think. Think about the bigger picture more. Um, quite often as athletes, when we're younger, we think about ourselves. How am I going to perform? Is the gaffer giving me criticism today? What does the gaffer need for me tomorrow? How can I, you know, in terms of a captain's role in the leadership, you start saying, how can I make the team better? And you start growing that way, thinking about a management position, you know, being an assistant coach um, in the Youth World Cup back in 2004 in Holland, you know, managing with the New York Red Bulls under Bruce Serena in 2007. You start to add to your resume what you're learning along the way. How would I do it as a manager? And so from that perspective, yeah, I've changed a great deal. What would I tell myself? Huh? A younger self, continue to stay humble. Continue to put the work in. Continue to be open to learning. Have a growth mindset. And so, you know, it's always about thinking about the next day. How can I be better and always improving? Jason? Yeah, just pushing it on to the international career a little bit then, John. Obviously, you you did uh, represent the USA on, on a fair fair number of times, not short of 100 appearances. Um, as you say, that first time in nine, in Italia 90 that, you, that you'd qualified and then obviously 94 World Cup in the States when, as you say, you'd still actually not got a recognised national league. Um, what, what was it like to be in and around the States at that time, uh, you know, when the world, when 94 was happening? It was... Uh beyond exciting <laughs> because 
everything was happening and it was a new world. It was a new world for a lot of fans, you know, and we were going to have an influx of international uh, fan bases coming over to our country. So there was also a lot of responsibility. Um, you know, our governing body really took it to heart to make sure that we put on a great, great show, a great World Cup. And as we were, it would, people were buzzing. I mean, the support for us, but at the same time, we felt a little bit of that pressure because we had qualified for 90 and we were there. And I felt like we were there as kind of, people said we were there as tourists, but we weren't. We were consistently learning from our experience. And the way we played in the first game against Czechoslovakia, losing 5-1 in 90, to our second game against Italy, losing 1-0 an Olympic Stadium in front of 74,000 people, was a great learning experience for us. So that was a different platform. 94, wow, that was going to be the testing ground for us. How much have we learned? How much are we going to step up now and compete? And we were drawn into the, uh, into the stages of Switzerland, the first game, Colombia in the second game, Romania in the, in the third. All very respectful nations. So Colombia was picked as one of the favorites to win it. Um, there was added pressure for sure. But in terms of the environment, in terms of our country, they embraced it. The fans came out. They supported us. It was exciting times. And it was a very important um, chapter in the history of the growth of our game. To compete in 90 and then to have another launching pad, a platform like that in 94 to prove who we were and to get out of our, our first round was so important. So when we did beat, you know, we drew against Switzerland, beat Colombia. Mm -hmm. um, it was both good and bad against them because sadly we lost a player in yeah. the sport. Uh, you never want to hear that, um, that somebody through people who are reckless and overpassionate or angry and, don't understand what competing is in sport that you lose a player like Escobar, but Andreas was a, a, a quality person. He was a, a great character in the game and a great leader. And it was so sad, but um, winning that game was important for us as a club, as a nation to move on and get out of the group, um, which we did and then played against July, July 4th and played against Brazil. Um, Independence day in the country can't get any better than written that script, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that was exciting. And unfortunately for me, I picked up a yellow card in the first game against Switzerland and a yellow card in the third game. And those carried over into the next round, which was really harsh. Um, I picked it up standing in a wall where the referee, we didn't even encroach. It was just one of those things. He thought we had encroached, but we didn't. And we showed the video to them in the audience. They couldn't you know, withdraw it. So I missed that game. But it was a proud day for our nation, for our country to do well. We lost 1-0 in Brazil, but we proved ourselves. And the game grew from there, and that was the next stepping stone to set it up commercially for 96 for the MLS. So, John, you know, you've obviously, you've just talked about you're this ambassador for, for, for American soccer. You, you've you've took this kind of mantle on to, to kind of grow the game. And I know you were involved in the U.S. team setup for a long time, but when you were when you're able to sit in that locker room in that dressing room and you're able to put the stars and stripes over your heart and that U.S. soccer badge, what's that feeling like for you? And then on top of that, what's it like to pull that shirt on and then pull on that captain's armband and captain your country? Yeah, pulling the jersey on the first time you get capped is uh, probably uh, the most thrilling experience because you know there are so many other good quality players that want to put that jersey on. So you have an understanding of like, you know, how, tr how much you truly value that. 
Um, and you consider yourself fortunate. And um, But every time you, you wear it, it's brilliant. When you wear it representing your country, like I did in the Olympics um, of 88, when you get to do it in 90 and 94 in World Cups, um, it's something that takes you over the top. It's hard to explain the adrenaline level that you have, you feel like you're floating on cloud nine and uh, being able to compete with that energy level is fantastic. So you're representing not just the fans, but other players that want to be in your spot. So you know that, you know, you've got to work hard. So it, it's a great feeling. Um, having the accountability as a captain and a leader means that you're always got to be on your guard. Um, you can't let it slip. you got to be there for other people. you got to be a servant leader. Um and so that's another thing that you add to your characteristic qualities as you grow in life and become a better person. So that was a great learning uh, curve for me, even as a captain. So it was a tremendous honor, tremendous honor. Jason? Yeah, I think, um, so looking at obviously the MLS and obviously you're dealing with the, the USL uh, as a whole, John, we're, as you said there from probably the, the mid nineties to, to when you, obviously finished banging up your boots and started management. That was a, another step up and things like that. Where the MLS is today, um, I, and I've been fortunate enough to come over and, and see a couple of games uh, when, I've, when I've been over there. Um, what do you think the next step is for the MLS? Um, would it be to try and get some of these USL teams as... I appreciate it's not quite a, a promotion relegation thing as obviously you get over in this country, but you know, is it about getting that next league below the MLS recognized a little bit more because obviously you're working yeah. in and there's got to be talent you know there's going to be talent uh, certainly guys coming out of you know with scholarships and things like that there's going to be talent available um is it about getting that a bit broader yeah i think you you know you want to you want to see the growth in the league you want to see the exposure in the league um the usl championship that's just below major league soccer and you're starting to see players now make that jump to the next level just like you're seeing players at the USL League One level. We were a brand-new uh, club in a brand-new league last year. Think about that. First, mm. first year last year to be a Division Three status in this, in this country. Um, so you're looking at a foundation, and you're building that pyramid structure so that we can be better. I sold two players from my club last year to the championship level. You want to make sure that every year you're advancing the game. That means that you're giving opportunities for players to step up. There's players from the championship level going to MLS now, and they're making a great living out of the game. I think you'll see, and I've had whisperings and I've talked to a lot of people at the USL level, that there's a great opportunity for USL League One and the championship to actually do promotion relegation within Mm. itself. Um, We would have the eyes of the world on us. Think about it. It would be fantastic to experiment and to try to get it right. Now you got to get it right from a commercial aspect, from a television, you know, from a business structure, operating costs with the ownership groups that maybe don't have the education and the history in the game itself. So that part of it too is getting that right. The players, yeah, we can enjoy it. You win your league, you pop up. Two, three, four, and five, maybe they do a you know, playoff like we do. Um, mm. Could be very exciting because every game counts, and then you see the level. The level starts to go up every single game. So. Is it something that we can maybe do internally first in the USL? I think so. Is it possible four or five years down the road in Major League Soccer? I think that's possible as well. I think it would make it really exciting in this country, and it would raise it to the next level for sure. Yeah. So, John, talk us a little bit about your um, about the Greenville Triumph. Obviously, the yes. manager, the sporting director, uh, your current, current role. 
USL. So tell us, tell us a little about the Greenville triumph and, um, and hopefully we can get a few more Derby fans watching, watching, watching Greenville and what they're all about. So just tell us your role and what the whole club encompasses and the ambition. Yeah. Um, you know, my role as a sporting director, a lot of people ask me, what does that mean? <laughs> well, it, it's to try to plan ahead. It's trying to plan the future two, three years from now for Greenville Triumph. So we want to make sure we're doing all the right things, paying attention to the small details and the building blocks of what does our club stand for. So that's establishing culture first. Um, being a manager here, yeah, it's about wins and losses, but it, it is about making sure when you walk through that door that you know as a player and as a staff member and as an ownership group, um, anybody in the front office, that we're one family, that this is a very trusting environment, that you come here and you want to be vulnerable. You can fight and compete every single day because you got honest people here that want to make you better. And that's what we're doing. We're creating a trusting culture, a culture that players are able to compete and push each other, but at the same time, respect each other. Same with the staff. And so we've done very well to build that up. The expectations, yeah, they're a little bit high in the first year. Um, you've got to have a balance in terms of your growth. There's going to be wins and losses, and you've got to deal with the highs and lows of the game. And my job as a coach, as a pro coach, is to make players better. It's to make them love the game, to make them, um, you know, want to improve, want to step up. And so we've done that at Greenville. We've done a good job. And getting to the championship um, in the first year was great. Um, we wanted to win it for sure, without a doubt. We always want to compete. I'm a competitive person. I love to win. And um, But you also know that that's setting up the club for good growth, you know, not just a foundation for year one, but for for year two, three, and four, and five. You don't want to see a club fail. You want to make sure the operating costs are right. So I have a say in a lot of things. And the, Joe Irwin's the owner and chairman of our club. Terrific guy, open-hearted, you know, learning the game every, every time he steps in, into uh, our environment here in the offices and on the field. And, um, yeah, it's been great. I'm enjoying it. So, John, I know, obviously, I think – I think your next home game is the first time that you're going to allow fans back in your stadium since the outbreak of the virus. Um, yep. how you talk about fans, I just want to make sure I'm prepared. See, there you go. <laughs> All right. So, so. Um, how does, how does, how was your role as a coach and, and as, as training these, training these young lads in this team, how has it changed? Uh, how has COVID affected your interactions with the lads and, and what you're able to do on a training field with them? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, you got a lot of restrictions and, um, you know, a lot of managers, I was talking to coaches in that, and, and initially I think you could think it's a negative situation that you're training in groups of twos and threes and, you know, where roommates or housemates are together, so you're allowed to train with them. And Major League Soccer was training by one player sometimes because they're in with their families and they're learning um, every day. How do we do that? How does that make sense? Uh, the restrictions and protocols, both by the league, um, you know, by um, – uh, the infectious disease specialist and also by local and, and state guidelines. We're very disciplined here as a club. Um, but I really took advantage of the small isolated training sessions because I think positionally you can be clear with the player exactly what is asking of them and what's demanding of them for that position. So from that perspective, we made the most of it as a coaching staff. And um, I think we benefited from it. Um, and it's just the patience, the diligence to have that, you got to stay optimistic, you know, and I'm an optimistic guy. I always think positive first. And uh, even during, you know, cases of COVID, family members, um, 
you got to be there mentally for the players. The mental aspect is huge. How do you get through that every day? You have to have open lines of communication. And that means not a text. It means FaceTime. If I can't see my player at night, I can't go visit them, and I can only see them distance-wise with a mask on, and you got to be on FaceTime. you got to be doing the Zoom calls. you got to do everything. And so we spend a lot of time doing that, making sure that from a mental aspect, our players felt safe, that we can help them advance forward and stay positive through that, through the, all that adversity that they went through. Jason? Yeah, I've got a couple more final questions for you, John. Uh, obviously, we don't want to it's take like up seven hours here, Jason. What are you doing? Yeah, I know, I know. We're going on, we're on and talking and on and on, aren't we? Um, but yeah, a couple more questions. Uh, I just want to pop it back over to obviously Derby uh, for a second. Um, what's your favorite memory of being with the Rams? I think my favorite memory um, is just being with the group that we had. I think the players, it was an interesting time, as I said. It was almost like a restructuring kind of ideas that Pickering had, wanted to spend money on younger players coming in, enthusiastic. Like I said, the players before, you know, the, the Paul Simpsons and Tommy Johnson, the Kitsons, the Gabby Deanies, all these players, um, quality, quality lads. And, uh, you know, Mark Tyler, all these guys. It was such a good group, and we were a tight group, and we were getting there. And that first year, we got to the final and we didn't make it. We dominated that game. If you go back yeah, and watch that I game, do. Yeah, final, yeah, yeah. we had many opportunities to finish them off and we didn't. But we always knew, you know, and I, I love the club and I wanted to stay there at the club and I had family there, as I said. Um, but all, other opportunities were pulling me away. And I was starting to think about a family as well. And my son was born in Derby, Ian, plays for Dundee United now in the Scottish Premiership. They're kicking off right now against Hibs, so you're not going to hold me too long. I'm not going <laughs> to babble too long. I've got to watch that game. But there was a growth of that club. There was an honesty about trying to give the fans what they wanted. And at that time, it was, can we build with Young so that we can sustain that for the futures to make us better to get there? In year one, we didn't make it. But I knew in year two, we would make it. I wasn't part of that, but we were initially part of that phase of growing the club. To me, I take a lot of joy in that setting that up, you know, Paul Williams, all the players that were there um, that came in and came out, you know, Martin Cole, all these guys were part of it in the growth of the club. And they could take pride in that, whether they were there for a year, two years, three years, or five. And that growth for Derby County was fantastic, which led them now to have Pride Park, to have a bigger stadium, to have a better training ground, to have a better academy. Darren Walsall, Craig Short, all these boys I talked to all the time. Uh, I visited there. My son played a day when he was younger there. Um, overseas, you know, with the academy and stuff. It's fantastic. So to see that growth, to know that I was part of that growth of the club is a big plus for me. And that was going to be my final question. Obviously, we can anybody who's watching the video of this can see the uh, Dundee United scarf in the background. Um, oh, yeah. yeah it is there. It is there. You have to check then, didn't you? It is there. <laughs> um, obviously, you say your son plays there. How How much would you like to see him take that step and, you know, maybe play at, play at the highest level in, in English football one day? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, we all wish the best for our kids. Um, you know, my, my two girls play as well. My wife played. We grew up as a football family. And uh, it, it wasn't like we, we, you know, pushed them every single day, said you got to be a footballer. We just said whatever you're going to do in life, whether you're a fireman, you know, mailman, it doesn't matter. Whatever you want to do, if you're going to be 
a doctor, a nurse, or a teacher, or what, be the best you can be. So we pushed them on. We pushed them on, and uh, they all gravitated to football to see my son making a living after playing at the club in D.C. United that I played for for two years, and then going over and he's growing the game as well because he's with Dundee United in the in the championship level and they win the, the, the league and they get promoted. Now he's in the premiership and he's competing at a new level. He's learning more about himself. I think it's fantastic. Um, he gets challenged. You always got to challenge yourself, um, you know, in this game. And he's loving it. And that's my, my dad's childhood club. My dad grew up uh, two block, blocks away mm. from both stadiums. You know, they're almost touching. They're so close with Dundee and Dundee United. To have my son go and play at my, my dad's club is phenomenal. It's it's something you can't fathom. And uh, so he's he's loving it. He's enjoying it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of him. And Dobby, Dobby tend to uh, like signing players from Scotland, Corey. So uh, you never Hopefully know. We, we can see him in a Dobby shirt then. We might see him. You said it, Dobby. You John, I've got two questions before I think we can let you go, right, Jason? Yeah, I've got, absolutely. I got Two questions for you, John. Um, regarding your son and you and your relationship, is it difficult for you as um, former pro, current pro coach, and dad? How do you weigh those roles when you're looking at your son's game, um, so that you know you can allow him the opportunity to to be his own person and to be his own player, but also try to help him along the way? Is it is a fine line to balance sometimes? Yeah, I think you're always checking yourself uh, with that balance, Corey. And, um, you know, I, you always know that you put yourself and your ego in check and that it's it's his vision, his dream. What does he want? Um, what you can do is you can assist them and guide them along the way, but they're the ones making the decisions. And when it comes down to their desires and they, you know, what pushes them, that's when you start to say, wow, here we go. He's ready, you know, or my daughters are ready. And so we're just there as parents. We're lucky enough that they're healthy. You know, we're fortunate and humble enough that they're, they're good kids. They work hard. Um, they do well in their academics in school. They know what the difference between right and wrong are. That's what your job is as a parent. My, my, my life doesn't mean that has to be my son's life or my daughter's life. It just means if they want it to be, I'm going to help them. If they ask for it, I'm going to give them advice. But it's always a fine balance of not stepping in and telling them what to do. Let them, it's a guided discovery in terms of their learning curve. And if you can continue to do that, um, even though I'm a manager, um, you know, you see things that they've got to learn in their time. It's not your time. You can't tell them when to learn these things. You got to sit back and be patient and let that growth happen. So it's been good. I, I'm enjoying it. I'm a very lucky man. My last question for you, John, before I think we can let you go. Me and Jason, let's just say we show up tomorrow for your training. Uh, not tomorrow because you're off tomorrow, but your next training <laughs> session, we show up. We put on the Greenville Triumph kit. What's working for Coach Harks like? What's working? Well, you always know that there's going to be a, a purpose to my work. Um, there's a plan, that, a very prepared plan, uh, whether it be, you know, we're working on uh, combinations in the final third, 3v2s, you know, a uh, numbers game, um, and growing that and developing that into the second stage of a 6v4, where it's a little bit bigger now. We're talking about the transition defending as well and how we grow as that four, uh, whether in the three block with the one sitting in front and holding six or just flat four. So there's different tactical adaptations that you're going to see in the game, but you know I'm going to have a smile on my face because I love the game. And I love teaching the game to players. And so I'm a coach who coaches through encouragement first. 
I'll point out the things that need to improve in players' games, but I'm better off pulling them aside and having the conversation so they take it in mentally. It doesn't help to yell at, at them 60 yards away and to make you know, your case or to, to make an example out of them. That doesn't help because their, their confidence levels go down. So for me, it's about you know, pushing them forward, demanding more of them and putting them out of their comfort zones, but at the same time, supporting them and being a great leader for them on and off the field. Well, John, it's been an absolute fantastic uh, interview. Thank you very much. It was great to watch you in the 90s in a Ram shirt. It's been just as good speaking to you today. Thank you very much for your time and good luck with everything that you're doing down at Greenville. Thank you so much, guys. I, I appreciate it, Jason and Corey. And, um, you know, I, I, I great memories of being with Darby, with the Rams, and uh, I support them today as well. I still watch the games and I'd love to get back there and mix in with some fans and, and you know, be with the club and see a game as well in Pride Park. Hopefully, John, if you do get over, we'll, uh, we'll we'll try we'll try not try and get together. Cheers, John. Thank you very much. Thanks, right, John. Guys, thanks so much. Thanks. Bye. All right. Ta-da. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of the Rams Review podcast. Please remember to get in touch on the socials. On Twitter, we are at Rams Review One. Our Facebook is Rams Review Podcast, or you could drop us an email, RamsReview at hotmail.com. Until next time, thank you very much and up the rounds.